and welcome back to Vox Popcast, the weekly pseudo-academic roundtable of pop culture analysis with drinking and swearing. My name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I am here with Wayne and Hannah and Katya. How's it going, guys? Mav. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I feel like I feel like this continues to be a loaded question. Yeah, I think it's a particularly really, loaded question I, I, this week. I feel like we should really switch it up, you know, like ask different questions, like you know, um, what's your dream vacation? Because at, right now, all our vacations are dreams, you know. On the, okay. on the scale of one to ten, how how strong is your existential dread? Yeah. Here, here's a good loaded question. Hey, hey, Hannah, watch anything good on television lately? <laughs> I'm going to set an example for some fictional people and just straight up say, I apologize for signing us up um, for a show, an episode about a show, Sight Unseen. Um, so I guess that's a way of segueing into saying we're discussing Netflix's new series starring Sandra Oh called The Chair which is about a fictional English department that kind of feels very real in some ways. <laughs> I, we have lots to talk about on this one. So <laughs> this is weird for me because our show is about pop culture and pop culture means popular culture. And if you work for a university, particularly an English department in the United States of America, you might think that Netflix is the chair is one of the most popular shows on television this week. If you do not work for an English de- department in the United States of America, you have likely never heard of this show before because <laughs> unless you have a lot of friends on on academic Twitter. So it, it, it's weird for me yeah, as to or, whether or not or, this counts. Or, or if you really liked Killing Eve. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Like, this, this show certainly like does add to like the media about professors and like going to college. I mean, you know, Gilmore Girls, Friday Night Lights, like all those shows are really aren't about that, but they have those plot lines, and okay. some of them are terrible. Well, we got some guests. <laughs> it's gonna be a it's gonna be a weird long show. We got we got a lot of people on, so I want to make sure we get to the guests early this time. But yes, we're gonna talk about a show that this is gonna be one of those shows with lots of spoilers. Um, so if you've not seen it, um, if you want to see it, I'm pretty sure you've watched it already. But if you've not seen it and you want to, make sure you go watch the chair. If you don't then just enjoy us ranting about it for the next hour or so. But uh, we have several people here. Or we end up, we have have the four of us and then we have a couple of guests. So first, I want to welcome back one of our earliest guests who hasn't been here for a long time. We have Natalie Shepard Bodine. Hey, Nat. Welcome back. Yo. Thanks. (laughs) I'm glad to be back. (laughs) It's been a while since you've been on. It has. Yeah. I don't know why y'all stopped inviting me to come around. No, it's all on (laughs) me, guys. We did not. (laughs) is not true. <laughs> no, that's, that's definitely not true. I just, you know, started working on my dissertation and stopped doing everything else. Mm-hmm. Like you do. So, mm-hmm. so Nat, you, 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 um, you had quite a few rants about the show. <laughs> I don't know about whatever you, you had. You had a particularly large rant about the show on Facebook, which is why I decided, oh, why don't you come on and talk? <laughs> I was basically live tweeting it. Yeah. While I was <laughs> watching it on Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, so that's one. And then I also like you know to welcome for the first time Kathy Newman, who is a professor of mine from and Katya's from when I did my master's degree. When when Katya and I first met, uh 
80 years ago. years old. So thank you. Yeah. I think I'm actually older than you are <laughs> or close, <laughs> but, but, but anyway, uh, Kathy is a, you, well, you tell people who you are. Uh, yeah, I, uh, this is my 25th year at Carnegie Mellon university. That's an actual number. And this was my first job out of graduate school. I got my PhD in American studies from Yale in the nineties. And, uh, I absolutely love being an English professor. I have tenure and I sometimes joke that I am a unicorn who won the lottery. Very lucky in my work. So, I mean, regular listeners know who the four of us are and, you know, we've talked a bunch about where we fall along the academic spectrum. No, I was just thinking, uh, we should probably go over actually our relationships with academia because that's going to be really uh, important for talking about the chair. I can start with myself. So, like Mav said, uh, I got my master's degree from Carnegie Mellon. I went on to a PhD at Duke. I am one of those weirdo people who went straight through all of their degrees because I'm a glutton for punishment. Um, And then after graduating from Duke in 2020, I left academia for a variety of reasons. Mostly just wanted something else. And I now work in user research um, in technology because I did all the, you know, media studies stuff on the games and all the interface things. Mm-hmm. And Hannah? So I I was an English major at Mississippi State University in undergrad. And I guess the silly thing I thought I'd do with my 20s is go to graduate school for a PhD in English at Duke. Um, and I, I studied Victorian literature, which um, if you would like to see the amount of jobs that are stable and available, you can check out the academic jobs wiki and uh, try. Um, just count to I, one. You can count to one. Counting to one is I, easy. We can just. <laughs> I, I did like I, I originally didn't know exactly like what I wanted to do after I graduated. I think partially because I started so young, but I, I eventually decided that the tenure track market's not really what I want to do. And now, basically, I. I, I am still a part of academia in a certain kind of way because I work at what um, generally might be seen as a center for teaching and learning. Okay, so for people who haven't heard before, I uh, got my bachelor's degree at Carnegie Mellon University a long, long time ago. Uh, and then I went and was a software designer for many, many years. And then I had a nervous breakdown and decided to go to grad school for English because yeah, that... Because that's you know, how you deal with a nervous breakdown. <laughs> yeah, pretty much after having like a, a nice successful... <laughs> I, made a, I made good money and... <laughs> I was just like, uh, Wayne, you knew me back then. I was not happy. No, no, <laughs> um, you really weren't. Um, but then I um, I started doing this for a living and I went to grad school, got a master's degree, enrolled in a PhD program, which I probably should have finished by now. But somebody decided to make there be a pandemic and that slowed me down. And I also um, I adjunct at like, Same. You know, at, <laughs> like, at, like <laughs> at like three different universities, um, which is a, you know, Adjuncting is essentially temporary employment for teachers, uh, something that pretty much is a really, really big part of academia, except for in the world of the chair where it doesn't exist at all. Um, <laughs> like the academic form of contract work. Yeah. And so or, the gig, uh, or gig work for that matter. Right. So I work for I currently work for uh, Duquesne University and Mount Aloysius College and the University of Pittsburgh. Um, 
because like like Katya said, it's like gig work in a lot of ways. And then I host this show. It's really. <laughs> and if you give us five stars on iTunes, we are that much closer to making a living. And Matt oh, might, yeah. might be able to work at two universities only. <laughs> no, no, there actually are academics that really do like make a living off podcasts. Um, we are not them. We, we, we are not them. <laughs> don't say that. Don't don't. If, not yet. if, if they don't not know, they yet. might they might be fooled. Wayne, <laughs> uh, I'm a hedge wizard. I. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I didn't follow an academic path. I mean, somewhat. I, I have undergrad degrees in history and psychology. I have a master's in psychology. And then I sold comics for 20 years and somehow fell backwards into adjuncting. Uh, so I've taught at, at uh, University of Chatham. I've taught at uh, University of Pittsburgh. Uh, I've been on the board of the Pittsburgh Museum. I've done presentations at uh, oh, Point Park and Seton Hill and a whole lot of other things with, uh, with comics related stuff. So I kind of fell backwards into this. I'm certainly not tenure track. Uh, I'm a freelance academic because I like homework. <laughs> hey, hey, Wayne. Yes. Didn't, didn't you recognize like certain scenes in the chair? Yes. yes. I, I should say this ahead of time uh, because it's all I will say the rest of the episode if I don't get it out now. I adjuncted at Chatham uh, here in Pittsburgh, which is where the chair was filmed. Uh, I know people who worked on the crew. Every episode was just, oh, I've been there. Oh, look, it's that room. Um, you know, when they had a scene going into the library, that's the library at Chatham. When they had a scene inside the library, that's the library at Chatham. When the woman was standing at the IT help desk at Chatham, I've stood at that exact IT help desk in Chatham. Uh, the, the very first opening scene, the boardroom they were in, is where I did my very first presentation on comics history at Chatham uh, as sort of my... Uh, my first audition for teaching at Chatham was in that room. So, so yeah. So, so to get the uh, annoying like Twitter voice out of my head. Um, so are the faculty offices that nice then? There? Oh yes, yes, they really oh, are. Chatham? Yes, yes, yes oh. absolutely. Yes. Um, the, yeah, wait, Chatham wait, is. Wait, wait, so, is okay, that's wait, just the start. Wait, no, no, no. Hang on. The the room that Sandra O oh is in as her office is the yeah, no, I know. I, I, yes. in yeah. the Mellon Center. I just want it to be known that is no ordinary <laughs> professor's office no, at no. any university. No, no, right. no, it's not. Um, which which way? That's a good place to start. Yeah. <laughs> well, I I think that maybe this is a good segue ahead. Like, do, Hannah, maybe you wanted to say a little bit more about what exactly the chair is. So, um, the chair is many things, and it's also many <laughs> not things. Um, <laughs> Like, I, think, I think that's actually a really good description of it because it's a six episode, 30 minute comedy about an English department at a maybe Harvard, Yale, maybe like an Ivy plus school. It's Pembroke. It's like not a real university. They and, call them the mini Ivy is what they call yeah. them on the show. And it, it brings up a lot of issues that are very real in academia. Everything from the sexism inherent in student like evaluations um to racial <laughs> microaggressions yeah. discrimination to to like a generational conflict of the changing of the humanities very very briefly like you know the condition of graduate students and by very briefly i mean like literally one, one scene line. Yeah. One, one line in one scene. and 
And so like there, there are a lot of like, and I, I think that actually it is a smart idea to do a comedy in academia because there are a lot of like ridiculous bureaucratic things that absolutely can be lampooned. Like, I mean, you know, like you, you could, you could, you could pitch like an entire episode, like the academic conference, the academic job talk that, you know, insert this thing here, but it's, it's a show that's really about mostly tenured professors, one tenure track professor in a very specific kind of English department that seems to not have like critically engaged with um, new pedagogies beyond one non-tenure professor since like the 1970s. (laughs) It's a department that like is at a point of transition around along multiple cultural axes that I think like regardless of how like like people who watch the show which I think we'll get into in a second that it was mostly academics that have watched this if not exclusively like I think that whether you like the show or not a lot of academics saw at least pieces if not significant pieces of our professional lives reflected in that show some of us felt seen by that in ways that were affirming and positive and others of us wanted to like yeet our computers out the window after watching it. <laughs> Bonus points if you guess which camp I fall <laughs> I mean, I think that the apology at the top of the hour tells you what camp I fall to. Well, okay. Quick survey, if we don't mind saying it. I just... I, because before I, I'm going to put leave myself last, but who liked the show? Hannah, how'd you feel about the show? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm as though going, I don't you text know, you daily. <laughs> you know, I'm going to reserve my comments to okay. the um, small corner, and, and by small, I mean the gigantic gaping black hole of the show, which is the character of Bill. I okay. hate Bill. Bill drags the show down. Everything that Bill does is the worst. Okay. Well, but but Hannah, but his wife died, so we have to give him some leeway. Pledging. That's just one of the worst cliches okay. in, in, in fiction. And so, like, five minutes into the show, I was poised to hate him. Okay, so that's one. So Hannah, Hannah at least Hannah hates Bill. Wayne, Wayne I, 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 also hates Bill. Well, yeah, I, I hated Bill. I Overall, my thoughts on the show was more meh than active anger or hate. Um, I just, he in particular, it just that that say they introduced that in the first five minutes. And like I remember conversations with friends 15, 20 years ago about how that's just one of the most overused cliches. You know, how can we give this this white man character development? Oh, I don't know. Let's kill his wife. It's just, <laughs> you know, like five minutes into it, it's like, oh, uh, it's like this is kind of book reading. Yeah. You know, it just that that set me up immediately. So therefore I couldn't buy any level of sympathy for him because I discounted the one they tried to give me. Mm-hmm. Uh, Katya, I mean, you've basically said, but your feelings were... <laughs> my, my journey was, I, I did not binge this all at once. I had I binged this in two sessions. My first session of the first three episodes, uh, vehemently negative, mostly because I hate Bill. And I think every woman in the show is basically uh, a plot device to further Bill's character development, uh, from his daughter to his dead wife to uh, Ji Hyun, Sandra Oh's character. But yeah. we'll get into that. Um, and then watching the last three episodes, I walked away feeling more at, like about the show as, as a whole. Meh. Like, I, I think there's a lot of problems, some of which are like problems with the show, some of which are actually problems about academia that I think the show does a decent job of like showing, albeit in a very attenuated way because it's only six episodes. And then other parts of it are because the show is fine 
I, mm-hmm. I, it's 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 <laughs> mediocre, but fine. Um, and I'll echo, I'll echo what got you saying. I mean, by the end of it, I didn't dislike it as much as I did in those first couple of episodes. Mm-hmm. I still didn't like it. <laughs> okay, we'll get back to that. I don't want to make sure yeah. I get all the other first impressions. Yeah. Kathy, yeah, yeah. what about you? Because yeah. I know um, it was a, after it's been beat up on by everybody else, Kathy. <laughs> <laughs> ask kind of a loaded question. Does anybody here have children? No. No. I was at the count. No. I was like, yeah. <laughs> okay, so I think the way this show kind of warmed its way into my heart is that I absolutely loved the the the, the kid, the adopted kid. Everybody I've mentioned this to at all agree she's the best part of the show. And mm-hmm. I'll tell you, like she's creepy and inappropriate <laughs> and she has no filter and she has no boundaries. And that really like struck a chord with me because my kids were like that at that age. Um, you just describe most of the co-hosts here. <laughs> We're all going to get along great. So I, I and I think that the motherhood plot is kind of maybe where Amanda, I think Amanda Pete, who is the showrunner, she's really good friends with Jay Duplass and they wanted to make a show together. They had they were working on a storyline where Jay Duplass's character is a widower. And then Amanda Pete was like, oh, wouldn't it be kind of interesting if there was a storyline where a woman was the boss of this guy who lost his wife and then she was having to like deal with his mess ups while also trying to run something. And I don't know at what point they hooked up with Anna Julia Wyman. She has a PhD from Harvard. She um, wrote her dissertation on comedy. I read her dissertation. I I think it's actually kind of amazing. She is the real academic in the room. So Mm -hmm. I don't know kind of who owns what part of the show, but the motherhood plot and the racial, the ethnicity stories, uh, the, this, this adopted kid saying, you're not my real mother. You're too old. Like I have a 14 year old who basically is saying those kinds of things to me every day. Like it just, (laughs) like it just grabbed my heart and squeezed it. And then, like, ripped it out of my chest and, like, it got me. I, I really mm-hmm. related to it. That's fair. I think that's fair. Yeah, and I agree with most, most of that as well. Yeah, I. there were parts of it that I really, really loved. Like, we don't often see academia on TV like this. And so I really liked seeing that part of it mm-hmm. um, and how real it was. But there were other parts that I just hated. Like, I hated that we made this whole show about you know, the humanities problems moving forward, especially in regards to gender and race and the labor of grad students and adjuncts who weren't even in the show. And then we made it about this white dude like who gave a Nazi salute in class as a joke and that was like the whole show and everything else just kind of got pushed to the sidelines. Yeah. I don't know that I walked away feeling meh about it. I had a really mixed bag. I was like, I love so much about this and I hate so much about this. I would agree with all of that because I think the thing that I found really frustrating, I think this is why I responded so viscerally to the first three episodes, is because it introduces so many important issues that I would love to see actually played out and like examined on screen and then Mm -hmm. does not deliver. I mean, speaking to the the parenthood subplot, like that was actually, speaking as a non-parent, that was one of my favorite parts because I thought like, 
this is something I haven't seen in the like genre of looking at academics on screen of like seeing a mother and like an adopted child and it, like racial relationships and everything like that and parenting. And I felt like that kind of got like, I, I really wish there was there was more energy in the show spent on that over Bill because like Bill's story I've heard a thousand times. I think it was kind of like, it felt very cliched. Whereas like that story and like with Ji Hyun and Juju, it's like, that is fascinating and cool. And I think also where mm-hmm. some of the best mm-hmm. occurs. Mm-hmm. And I think Bill overtakes the Juju plot line to some degree because yes. yeah. he, he's, he's like hanging around her and she likes he's, Bill. Yeah. A lot, a lot of, a lot of the reviews I read were like, oh, it's so endearing to see Bill and Juju's relationship. But I really wish that like there were more moments. I, I They don't specifically, I think, cite the scene, but the moment where Jiyoon is crying yeah. and Juju is like, I'm not scared. Yes. Um, and like finally speaks Korean. Like, that, that, was, that was really good. But also yeah. that like it feels like they almost backtrack after that because like a, like a scene maybe, I don't know, five minutes later is Juju saying, no wonder no one wanted to marry you because she won't like Bill stay for dinner. Um, uh, well, so, she's a she's a crappy I mean, six year old. I mean, she's a crappy six year old. Delightful six year old. Excuse me. But, oh, no, I love her. I, I don't want her. No, six year olds. I, I I have many six year olds in my life. They are horrible people. Doesn't mean I don't love them. Yeah. But, <laughs> but you know, like it's just it's always Bill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were plenty of other opportunities that they could have given even in that scene at the end of the show without Bill to still show like even though we had this really touching moment between Jiyoon and Juju like she's still a crappy six year old like there were so many other things you could have done instead Mm of yet another reason to like Bill (laughs) how do you feel uh, I don't know that I want to say meh Um, I tried to approach it the way I would approach analyzing any other show and and this is hard because it very much is a show that wants to be about I mean, the reason the six of us are on this show is it's a show that wants to be about our, our literal lives, right? In in one way or another. And every time I approach something, a film or a book or a TV show, whenever I try to, uh, a comic, I always try to approach it just the same way I would analyze anything else and just like take out the fact that this is supposed to be targeting literally me and, and approach it as a regular show. And as a regular show, I thought it was mediocre and fine with the caveat that I, I think we're paying more attention to it because it is an academic show for academics, but also that world isn't super explored um, on modern television. I mean, like it's a, it's a sitcom about academics. It's competition in recent years is the big bang theory and that's it that's that's literally and it's a very different show than the big bang theory but that's literally the the modern only about academia on like big bang theory is also only on about academia on a technicality Yes. Like, yeah. that's not yeah. a central yeah. subject of the show. Right. Very, Actually, if you yeah, want to sub different. over, yeah, if you want to sub over unrealistic portrayals of academia, like the showrunners right. of the Big Bang Theory, do not understand anything about well, it. Or, well, or well, okay, so, so a little, a, a little thing that I do know is the the showrunners of the Big Bang Theory actually do. They're just uh, because they actually do have a whole department that like consults with academics for everything about like whenever they if they talk about science, if they talk about physics, anything they talk about. They have consultants that are PhDs in whatever field that they consult constantly. 
They just don't they care about care. anything about yeah, their life. It's literally just Let me rephrase that. They, they don't care about like the intricacies of the bureaucracy of yeah. what it's like to no, be no. in a department. They, yeah. they, 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 yeah, they care about getting the set mm-hmm. dressing right. 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 So, right. so it's a different kind of show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I actually think the later episodes of Community, the the later yes. seasons of Community mm-hmm. do a great job of mm-hmm. at least on a small scale. I've taught at a community college and despite all of the like weird almost like magical realism stuff <laughs> in that show, yeah. uh it, it's very accurate to how a community college is run anyway. But there's not but there's not much. And so I so I understand no. that so this is the, only the later seasons. Right. Well no, but I mean the, the chair is like this one show that's really trying to hit this this specific nerve i mean we heard about it originally i think like six months ago and when it came up hannah's like we're doing a show on this no matter what six months out but we're gonna do a show on there and we were like yeah yeah sure but all of academia took notice of it i think because academic twitter in general is like oh my god someone cares about us you know us nerds you know this is a this is a a chance to feel seen and i know um, I know from experience, this is what it used to be like in the 70s. Anytime somebody put a, a black television show on, you know, well, I've got to watch that. Why? Because there's black people on it. And, you know, if we don't watch it, then they may never knew an- do another black TV show. So we've got to we're just going to watch Sanford and Son. It doesn't matter if it's good or not. We're going to watch it. Right. And I, I adored Sanford and Son. But but that's that was like the thing. And then um, this, the that, that's same what I was like with the Beverly Hillbillies and Green Acres. So. <laughs> yeah. so I want to defend English professors over this show and I uh, on this ground uh, on Twitter people are like oh doctors don't complain about doctor shows lawyers don't complain about lawyer shows well sure but what I'm saying is I mean everyone's grousing about how much attention academics are giving to this but I would say that especially those of us who are literature professors there is actually a field called the college novel where people study representations of college students and professors in literature so we are primed for this i also think it's not just like identity politics so there's a little bit of that i do think there's terrible anti-intellectualism in american culture and so to see people actually talking about literature Mm -hmm. in a fictional setting and talking eruditely and using big words but also being funny like i think this is kind of a big deal I think so too. But it was the only one. That was what I do. It's one show. I think there is an important question though about who this show is for. Because I do I like I agree with I, I agree, Kathy, with your sentiment. On the other hand, like one of my gripes with one of my kind of like gripes with the show, gripe is maybe too strong a word, but one of my like, well, maybe it's not. I don't know. <laughs> is I don't think and I talked to a few of my friends who watched, you know, got a few episodes in who have they're not academics, they have bachelor's degrees, and then like academia is not part of their lives. I'm convinced that the show, unless you're a Sandra O fan, since Sandra the other like it seems to be the two the two primary viewer camps seem to be people with some kind of re- personal relationship with academia. And Sandra O fans. That that's the two demographics that I see. <laughs> and which is great. But like I think it's really difficult to for, for people who don't have a personal relationship with academia to watch this show and for it to kind of hang together for this. One of the things I notice both personally and I'm seeing in people, particularly junior folks, by which I mean like graduate students, adjuncts, pre-tenure folks, a lot of the drama is not really coming from the show itself. It's coming from the show prompting or in some cases people are using the language of triggering like uh our negative experiences of academia and then that's part of what is making the show compelling because i think i would i mean i think one of the interesting things is 
I did not experience this show as a comedy. And I think a significant number of people who watch this did not experience the show as a comedy. <laughs> All this to say is like, you know, people, people who don't know the terminology, like they don't know, not only do they not know, like get the Gulliver's Travels references, but they don't know the intricacies of the bureaucracy. They don't know what a mm-hmm. lot might say, like op- the phrase opening a line, meaning like opening a line of hire. Yeah. Like that is not a phrase outside of academia. So I don't, I, I question how legible the show is at taking that conversation about literature and this conversation about academia and the cultural clash that the show is trying to like look at beyond the sort of like very rarefied world of the ivory tower already. Like in some ways I feel like the show is, is per- kind of trapped by the thing it's trying to have a conversation about. So I looked this up. There are 41,000 English professors in the U.S. That's and I don't know yeah. if that includes adjuncts and graduate students. So, Probably. so but so that's a lot. I mean, that's not a lot of people, but it maybe is a lot of people to be streaming the same thing on Netflix. This show has been at the number one or number two spot every day since it debuted. So I would question sort of. the fact that I was going to talk about that. I was going to talk about that. I know the numbers. Yeah, it's, so, yeah, yeah. Can you explain that to me as someone who doesn't yeah. follow the metrics? Okay. okay. So uh, yeah, because we should cover it. Cover it. It's Netflix numbers are weird. Netflix officially doesn't release numbers for every show unless they, they only release numbers when they want to, which makes their metrics weird um they do tell us how they collect data and their data is misleading netflix counts a view as someone watched more than two minutes of a show two minutes is their is their is their cutoff now that's interesting but it's also problematic because netflix controls it's not like regular television where something comes on at eight and then something comes on at nine. So whatever comes on at nine, if you watch two minutes of it, you know, Netflix controls what comes on after you finish watching the last show. Right. So if you, if you were, were streaming community or you were streaming great British bake off or whatever you were streaming and Netflix decides, well, you finished an episode. So now we're going to play an episode of the chair until you get around to going around and turning off the television. Netflix counts that as a view. This has been a problem for them. uh, Complicated by everyone. since they started releasing numbers, there's another company called Nielsen is working on um, yeah, on trying to tabulate them fairly. And there's another company called Samba TV, which tries to tabulate them as well. Interesting. So Netflix currently has it listed as their number seven show um, at the time of us recording this episode. Um Number eight is Coco Melon, which is a show for preschoolers, um, which has been in the t- which has been in the top 10 every week for the last six months. And number six is All American, which are which is a CW show that's uh, about uh, football, a high school football program. And then above that, there's Manifest, Outer Banks, Vivo, which is a movie, uh, The Loud, The Loud House, which is a movie and Sweet Girl, which is a movie. So those are the things that Netflix is reporting as their tops um samba tv does not report anything and at the tops um beyond vivo so outer banks manifest and all american are all below their standard which is probably true based on Twitter trending since we never know the official numbers for Netflix. And when Netflix reports numbers, it's always 30 million or higher, um, which is ridiculously high. Um, What I do know, however, is uh, the same day that the chair was released, um, the stars television show heels, which is about pro wrestling. It's a dramedy about pro about independent pro wrestling, which is another love of mine. So, so I've been following it. Heels was released the same day. Um, It did trend on Twitter for 
one day and it's been about the same level of traffic as chair overall. Um, and they have Nielsen ratings. So I know 200,000 people watch that show. So that gives me a range of where they're since, since, since it's getting about the same amount of Twitter traffic, I'm assuming that heels and, and um, heels would have had about the same amount of uh, amount of views because it's stars versus Netflix. So it's relatively similar user base. So I'm guessing probably about 200,000 people watched it. That Context, would be my as, guess. A, as a non streaming knowledgeable person in terms of as a non streaming knowledgeable person. Like what, like what? Yeah. In, in your estimation of like overall popularity, like where does that set? Pretty low. If, so if you're if you're a fan of uh, something of our audience would be WandaVision. WandaVision would probably be um, just things like that, like the, the Marvel shows. Those are probably in the two and three million dollars, uh, three million range. If you're a fan of something like Stranger Things, it probably goes up more like five to ten. Um, if it, it, so for for an entire series, it, it's it's not there. Three two hundred thousand is really, really good for a um, for a network like Stars or or, you know, a basic uh, or a cable network that is not HBO or something like that. But it's not lighting the world on fire. This is not going to be in an, under Emmy consideration just because there just weren't enough eye eyeballs on it. But it's enough that like it's enough that it probably paid for itself. Like it was probably, you know, it's not there weren't a lot of special effects or anything like that. So it's the kind of show that, you know, it's it's a good enough niche show that, you know, people will like it. Uh, Christmas Chronicles, the show, a movie that Hannah and I watched and nobody else on, on our show. Um, <laughs> I watched uh, Half a million people. Great. Million people. Uh, wow. Yeah. So um, half, yeah. I, I feel like technically maybe depending on like what else is out there, Sandra O oh might get a nomination for this because people like Sandra O oh and she's in, she's they like, do. Yeah, but the actor, but she, the actor categories is, yeah, is, is really, really packed this year. So, um, it's, I mean, it's weird. Like, I don't think it's bad. I think, I think everything Kathy said is true. I think everything Nat mm. said is true. I think that the importance of the show is great for a group of people who don't usually, you know, representation is important. We always say that and we usually mean race, but for a group of people who don't see themselves fairly represented on television very often, because we're not lawyers or medical doctors or, you know, like we don't have a lot of shows that, you know, there's a billion shows that are law and order. There's a billion shows that are ER, Grey's Anatomy. You don't have a lot of the chairs running around. So it was nice seeing that. Um, but it also means that since there's not a lot to compare it to, I think that, you know, we will criticize, oh, too much bill or, you know, Sandro didn't do this or she did do this or there aren't enough grad students, there aren't enough adjuncts. We'll criticize those things because we only have one option and one show can't do everything in six episodes. But damn, did they try? <laughs> <laughs> I will say that I do think this show was was really important in combating the new like I don't know if y'all are familiar with like this dark academia aesthetic that's going around mm -hmm. where we're like romanticizing grad school and romanticizing like the ivory tower and it hit Who's those wickets that? because it's obviously oh <laughs> The babies, the, the 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 very young people who haven't even applied to Largely grad school Gen, yet. Yeah, Gen Z into younger yeah. millennials, and it's more of like an aesthetic. Yeah, it's like cottagecore. Yeah, it's not necessarily people like this shows up in the sewing, you know, for regular listeners, and I do the sewing and the fashion thing, but um. Yeah, it, and it's yeah, it's an aesthetic. It doesn't necessarily overlap with actual academics, and I think that's it's a really good point to bring up because within dark academia, it's romanticizing this certain like aesthetic of like academic grunge, romantic like romantic academic grunge 
whatever. But also, like, I also see it romanticizing the burnout and, like, the some of the negative cultural things that come along with academia. Like, the idea yeah. that, like, dark circles under your eyes because you don't sleep and you're constantly over-caffeinated and all those other things, which, like... Just, I'm going to say something as a as a comics fan, but this generation just read far too much manga. <laughs> hey, hey, I read far too much manga. I totally yeah, identify with that statement. Because every, everything you're describing is like, oh, that's like a 73-book series, right? <laughs> and it's actually... All of the like dark academia books are these like murder mysteries that just happen to take place on college campuses. Like the secret history uh, is like the okay. founding text of okay. dark academia. So the fact that all of these texts that are like the dark academia aesthetic have like murder in them, I think should be a big red flag. <laughs> oh, I wonder if they could have done a lot more with a murder mystery plot. My <laughs> <laughs> favorite day on academic Twitter was, and I forget what show it was, um, someone, like the chair of a department got murdered and the motive behind the crime was someone else had murdered that person to become the chair. Um, <laughs> and academic Twitter freaked out and uh, and, 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 and I, I guess like um, the notable thing in this show is like, it's actually, it's, it's weirdly ambivalent, I feel like, about the chair spot. Like, people seem to want to be chair. And at the end, when Joan becomes chair, I feel like we're supposed to, like, feel like that's, like, triumphant. Like, yay, she got the nice office or something. Um, This is a question for Kathy. But also, like, you know, Sandra O's character literally says, it's a shit job. (laughs) And I would love Kathy's opinion on this. Do people actually want to be chair? Because every department I've been in, at least when people talk to grad students, people are concerned about being chair as, like, taking away from, like, their time for research and teaching. And so, like, not to say it's not desirable in the terms of prestige and, like, career development, but people seem to have complicated feelings about the reality of being chair. In a way that this question, this this show prompted many questions, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, so I think that's a fair question. There's, this is a very, like, inside baseball distinction, but chairs are usually elected by the department. Other faculty, Mm -hmm. at Carnegie Mellon, we have a structure where you have a department head. Heads are appointed by deans. Mm -hmm. And I do have a colleague who has wanted to be the head of our department for a very long time and has never won the prize. Our current head is a dear, dear friend of mine, an amazing scholar, person, and leader. Uh, her name's Andrea Ridavoy. She is in her second term. I think she very reluctantly agreed to a second term. And we, <laughs> basically, all of us went to her and begged her because she's like so faculty focused. She's done an amazing job with the budget. I mean, she's just amazing. And so, yeah, I think yeah. I think it's a crap job. And I also think it's it's you know it's not it doesn't have the the fun drama that we see in this comedy or if it does you know it's not fun but my favorite tweet about the chair was this summer a friend of mine tweeted if this chair thing isn't just screen grab after screen grab of sandra o looking at her email and then wistfully looking over at her list of things to do then like forget it we should make it clear to our listeners who aren't in academia 
if you've watched this show, it very much Jiyun is the boss. The chair is the boss, but that's misleading. The, bo- the the chair of a department, you are not the boss of the other professors in the way that you probably think like the middle of management sense that <laughs> yeah. I think people assume. Right. You are in charge of handling a bunch of shit. You're not like you're not, you know, it's not it's not. It's not the it's not the same as you know. Here's my manager that I go to you know for a raise. Not the same way that like you do the boss at any other at any other job, um, which is right. why it floats right. Like the chair, the chair is not necessarily the person with the most seniority. Um, the chair floats every depending on your school, three years, five years, like how long your term is. Like it it, it moves around. So it's it's a it's a weird kind of it's very you know, you're the head of the department, but in a very most yeah. people would be familiar with. And I think it's it's easy to watch the show and not get that because they mm-hmm. do occasionally refer like like Bill, I think Bill actually uses specifically language of and 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 uh, Ji Hyun both use the language of I'm your boss, you are my boss. Mm-hmm. Isn't wrong? I, called, I say I mean I say that to the chair of my right. department. Well, it's not wrong in the sense of it's like it's, it's not a wrong in the sense of the leadership connotation, but it's not. I think I think it is not obvious from the show that the boss, the sort of boss relationship as the chair is much more of a leader among peers as than it is. It doesn't you know, map what most people would experience in the workplace. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't map onto the boss at a construction site. Yes. Right. So I, you know, I think we, we've talked about sort of like representations of academia and some of the examples we've gave, like, like the Big Bang Theory are very like mm-hmm. science focused. Mm-hmm. And this like, like the, like the first thing you get when you turn on the chair is an argument for the humanities, which I've taken the liberty of writing down. And I want to, I want to read, I want to read back to you because I I want uh, everyone's like take on this. And I apologize that I'm not Sandra Oh and can't deliver this in the same day. But so she, she, to set the scene for those of you who are listening, despite not having watched the show, she's like at her first apartment meeting and she says, we are in dire crisis. Enrollment, enrollments are down more than 30%. Our budget is being gutted. It feels like the sea is washing the ground out from under our feet. In these unprecedented times, we have to prove that what we do in the classroom, modeling critical thinking, stressing the value of empathy is more important than ever and has value to the public good. It's true. We can't teach our students coding or engineering. What we teach them cannot be quantified or put down on a resume as a skill. But let us have pride in what we can offer future generations. We need to remind these young people that knowledge doesn't come from spreadsheets or wiki entries and on it goes. And I also should say that like the scene is undercut with build the black hole which I'm going to just officially call him now, like doing ridiculous things in the airport and the airport parking lot, but I don't care about him. So um, we can, you know, I, you know, what did, what did people think about like that characterization of like English and the humanities? I feel like just because I feel like as the, one of, one of the people on the show who was an ac- was in academia and is now an in industry. And because this is the speech that talks about resumes and job skills and blah, blah, blah. This has been on my mind a lot since graduating uh, now a year and a half ago. I, I think it's, it's 
a very good characterization of the anxiety that a lot of humanities feel, like a lot of people in humanities feel, and the economic reality of many departments. Like what we're talking about dropping enrollments and the ramifications that has for the longevity of departments, like that, that feels like a very real characterization. My problem with this is that I disagree about the implication that it's not, that, that there is not utility. Um, and, and I know that there are colleagues in the humanities that would disagree with this and who feel that the kind of perspective I have is instrumentalizing humanities in a way that they are not happy about, which like, you know, fair enough. My issue with that is because so for, for I'm sure long time listeners of the show, this is we know of surprise, the humanities, like there is, the way that I always talk about things is like, they're talking about spreadsheets, they're talking about quantifying things. There is no such thing, in my humble opinion, as a person who's been studying scholarship and also epistemology and all those kinds of things for a very long time. There's no such thing as a fact that speaks for itself. Mm-hmm. We are always taking information about the world and setting it in a narrative context. We are always telling stories to ourselves about the world. And being able to understand that, uh, both in, in written formats, in developing the empathy that you develop through the, studying the humanities and things like that, is immensely valuable in industry. You can put it on a resume. I have done it. There are other people in the show that have done it. Um, and also, <laughs> I think it's really important to call that out because I think that there's this ongoing story particularly to people who are advanced in the field, I'm talking about master's students and to PhD students, that there isn't utility outside of academia. Um, and there absolutely is. And I think that that we're, we're like, as scholars, the more we reinforce that narrative, we are undermining the utility of our own scholarship. Like we are living in the internet age. We are living in, a, in an age where media is the, and technology stuff that humans made is how we fundamentally experience the world, arguably more so than any other age. I am a big proponent of nothing, nothing, you know, everything, there's nothing new ever. But like, if there is ever a time for the humanities to be useful, it's, it, it, we're in it. Mm-hmm. So yes, the economic and practical ramifications of what's, what Sandra O's talking about that speech is, is real. But I think part of that, and I think part of what the show is, is demonstrating through like the changing of pedagogy, the changing the conflict that like the, the conflict between different generations of scholars, is the growing pains of shifting how do we talk about the humanities in a way that fits the context that students are the, the, the world students are living in because not every student most students are not going to go on to become academics so showing the value of the humanities is basically like how do the humanities help you navigate your life in a way that is legible beyond like knowing you know the intricacies of like the history of Moby Dick as much as I love the intricacies mm-hmm. of the history of Moby Dick I had a thought about that as well when watching the show the show wants to be it wants to be critical of a thing that it is doing right and this is this happens in a lot of a lot of academic media um but it's trying to be critical of academia and that attitude i think it I, think, I don't think you're supposed to think that um, come away from the saying, no, the study of knowledge for the pursuit of knowledge with no other purpose is 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 a just and wonderful thing. Right. Like the entire point of her freaking out at David Duchovny. Um, oh, yeah. David Duchovny's in the show playing himself. Yeah. He's, <laughs> yeah. he's actually great. Um, but but when she freaks out at David Duchovny and then she realizes that she's talking about the value 
in Yaz's research when she's talking to him. Like, I think that's supposed to be her aha moment. That said, I think the show is still guilty of microcosming academia as this perfect, unique world that I don't think mm-hmm. it is. And that's why I want to, you know, Natalie is somebody else who's like sort of, you know, very much trapped between the two worlds right now, I would say, right? <laughs> um, like, like, I mean, I'm the reverse of Katya, right? Like Katya is leaving academia um, after basically being there your entire life. And then I'm tooth and nail fighting my way back in. Right. That's like, that's all I do anymore. But I think, but I think Nat, you like literally are sitting on that line. Right. Yeah. I, um, I was supposed to graduate this past May, but you know, because of all of the everything world of fire. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, That obviously got, got pushed back. And, um, I actually am trying to leave academia and I'm at this weird place where I'm not sure whether I should continue. Cause what is the point of a PhD if you're not going to be a professor? Um, and I actually, you know, I agree with everything Katya said about the value of the humanities. And I actually think Sandra O oh was kind of making that argument as well in that opening like monologue thing. But it's almost like people who aren't in academia think that academics think this. Yeah. <laughs> and that hasn't been my experience. Like, uh, first of all, the English department isn't going anywhere because you will always need people to teach freshmen how to write. Other Sorry, humanities, that class doesn't exist in the show. <laughs> yeah. That's a big problem with this college. I think if, if, if the I English department is in danger of failing, that's probably why. Start a freshman composition course. <laughs> By the way, side note, Pembroke is kind of like Duke in that it feels like their writing department is actually separate from the English department, except maybe creative writing, which is where they get their enrollments, which is like what that's what Pembroke says on the show. Like we Korea writing is the only place we're growing when guy threatens not to teach comp at one point. Yeah. Yeah, there's a yeah, there's a it, yeah, the it, it, I'm not clearly in there. Yeah, but it's yeah, it's a punishment, you know. Oh god, don't make me teach yeah. punk. Uh, you know, part of this. the reason why composition doesn't exist in this show, other than as a punishment, is because composition, I mean it varies by universities, but introductory courses and specifically writing and composition are disproportionately taught by adjuncts and graduate students. The lack uh-huh. without representing that story, which is a huge if you want to talk about issues of academic culture, is a very big gap in this show. I mean, I think part of it is just like the show is very short. They can't do everything. Um, You can't you can't really represent that. Yeah. Dr. Dobson's grad student who like helps him teach his class, who is also like writing her own dissertation. I'm just like, she should have her own class by now. (laughs) (laughs) Why isn't she teaching at least like freshman comp? (laughs) She she might be on screen. Again, it varies by university. Like when I was a graduate student, I mean, this is like one of the dirty little secrets, I think, of the Ivies. When I was a graduate student Mm -hmm. at Yale, there weren't I was not I basically wasn't allowed to teach my own class. I was a TA for five years and I actually Mm -hmm. loved it. I loved being part Mm -hmm. of a team. And when I got to my first job here, I'm like, oh, my God, I have to do this all by myself. I love (laughs) being part of a team. It was like I was part of a movement to create a graduate student union at the school that's still going on. That union is still not recognized. 
it, it was a great experience. But I, I think to like a lot of those Ivy League schools, you you know, if you you know, you're paying seventy, eighty, hundred thousand dollars a year for that degree, and you're getting a lot of graduate students as your primary kind of mm-hmm. contact. Whereas here right. at Carnegie Mellon, we basically mm-hmm. don't have lecture classes, and all mm-hmm. of our graduates do teach yeah. their own classes. So, and I just want right. to say one thing about the adjunct plot because I've seen so many people frustrated and angry, like not just in this group that it's missing in 2020, somebody had heard about the chair on Twitter and they said, Hey, if this chair show, I I have no interest in it unless it takes a buzzsaw to the exploitation of sessionals and adjuncts. And the academic writer Wyman tweeted back, I wrote it and it does. So I want to see the pages. I want to see the script that Wyman was holding in her hand in the summer of 2020. And I want to see the meat grinder that it was put through. The version that we well, yeah, we don't even get a mention. Yeah, it's hard because here's here's what I wonder, and it's this is this is the fairness of representation in in media that uh, you know what it reminded me of. This is what it, this is. Uh, I, I think the show wants to to have a world that talks about what it talks about, and maybe I don't know how much she really wrote about adjuncts and got cut. I don't know if it's how much it, she thinks she wrote, and and it, it isn't really there. It doesn't matter, right? The show is trying. The show wants Sandra O oh to be a superhero. You know, they want her to mm-hmm. be the good, the good person. You know, she is the shining beacon, but it's hard to do that and then have her also be complicit in a world that you know the tenure system exists and it wanted that and that wanted to be a subplot. And if you're going to have that as a subplot, that can only that can only exist if you acknowledge that, you know, there is an exploitive nature of adjunct labor just inherent in university systems right now. And to acknowledge that almost makes her a bad guy in a way that I don't think is like, I don't I think it's really complicated in real life. But I think but in six episodes of TV show. But doesn't the show make her just complicit and like making like she she makes very bad choices from the beginning, well, from the first episode. Mm-hmm. Like she she she's betrays just, every woman on screen. That's actually one of okay. I think that's actually one of the things that in a weird way I, I am bothered by how much the show repeatedly undermines Sandra O's character because I think she mm-hmm. I don't I, I would disagree, Mav. I don't think that the show was trying to make her out to be a superhero. I think part of what the show ends up representing is how hard it would be for a woman because we have to remember she's the first female first chair, chair, of female chair, female chair yes. especially the first female chair of color um i think part of what the show ends up demonstrating is how much like like she is curtailed by the systems in place meaning that without major mm-hmm. systemic change within the institution she can't as hannah was saying really support her female colleagues in the way that she wants to. She can't support her colleagues of color or her students of color Mm -hmm. in the way that she wants to. She cannot be the change agent. She's really passionate about the early episodes because she is constantly being basically pressured by uh, older, out of touch, white male deans, mm-hmm. and more importantly, and I like for the sh- like in the, the plot of the show, embroiled in a scandal that shouldn't be a scandal, produced by a kind of like a, a uh, how am I going to put this? Um, kind of buffoon of a mediocre white dude who happens <laughs> to be a professor. Like the fact, like he's basically. I, I think part of the reason the bill bothers me so much, and I think this is why. And Hannah, feel free to jump in here because I know you have feelings about this as well. Like the black hole of Bill, he sucks all the energy out of the room 
And it basically makes the fact that the plot, the central plot centers around him screwing up and more importantly, him screwing up, ignoring Sandra O's authority and her advice that would have helped him. Um, mm-hmm. Basically kind of like acting in a, like best acting inappropriately at worst, potentially sexually harassing her, even though, I mean, I realize that they have a flirtation and have some kind of relationship. I would argue that the way that he acts towards her physically, especially in the first two episodes, I, I find disturbing. Yeah. <laughs> and because he is takes so much, up so much energy, it is really hard to actually see this for me as a show about, Sandra O's character about Ji Hyun. It's to me it's a show about Bill in which Ji Hyun is an accessory because Mm -hmm. the show has demonstrated the way that Ji Hyun and Yaz and every other woman in the show is basically an accessory to a system. That's I think what I mean. I think that to give her character um, beyond what they gave her would involve making hard choices. What I, what I was trying to say before was I think that they don't want to acknowledge that she has bad traits and therefore, and they come real close once when, when Yaz tells her off and says, you know, why don't you just, you know, you are a superstar, act like it. Yaz says that to her at one point. But for the most part, I think the show is really trying to make stuff not her fault. And sometimes it is not Bill. Bill's not her fault, but Bill, you know, yeah, Bill, I- fucked up but but i think that i think the show wants her to be a good person and but the thing that really bothers me and just to be very explicit about because um i just at the very beginning when there's low enrollments um in in american letters (laughs) um that's literally (laughs) the class um survey of american letters letters, yeah she she you know convinces yaz and puts her in an uncomfortable position where she is basically like pressured to co-teach with the guy in charge of her tenure case despite Yaz's expressed discomfort and I just I Yaz superstar important an important context black female professor only black only like only black female professor in the department she is killing it in her enrollments and she is basically like the show makes her out to be like she is a emerging leader in her field the person mm-hmm. she is paired with to co-teach has four people in his class. Seven. Seven? Great. <laughs> there, there, seven on the spreadsheet, only four actors were cast. I, I count it. Right. <laughs> so. He's basically on a list that they, they introduced in the first episode of like up for probation and or firing because his enrollment is so low. Like his mm-hmm. his job is in jeopardy. Mm-hmm. Okay, sorry, Hannah, continue. Just, well, just, you know. That, that just that that like pushing of that power dynamic and her refusal to stand up for Yaz until it's too late and that combined with how she she pressures Joan to go to the Title IX office and then abandons her for Bill and you you just see like the, this mm-hmm. like pattern again and again and I, I to be fair I don't know what to make of it I don't know if the show is really like emphasizing just how complicit she is or if it's a, like you know you know the, I think sometimes the problem whenever you have a romantic comedy esque thing and you center the relationship between a man and a woman and the man is a black hole um, and the woman just devotes all her energy to him like. It, it, it seems like she acts out of character for who you might expect this person to be um, if she were written logically. Um, and, you know, like I, I just I, I don't know. I don't. I, I've been trying to logic. grapple with. You know, yeah. I've been trying. You know, I've been trying to grapple with this uh, since watching it on Friday. And I, I mean, I, I think that you know the the show does emphasize the point that just because you're a woman or a woman of color and you've experienced sexism or racism doesn't necessarily mean that 
you are going to be as radical as people want you to be. But on the other hand, I'm not sure like... Or even as radical as you yourself want to be. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure like how much those like plot, like those instances of plot lines align with that theme that's really brought home in the like final couple of episodes or if it's just a blind spot. <sighs> the end is so unsatisfying because like from that perspective as well because it's like Jihyun basically so she is by the end of the episode last episode she's no longer chair. Her and Bill kind of have a potential relationship blah 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 which by after he basically is about to lose his job and basically kind of asks her well not kind of asks her to give up her job and basically her career to go run away with him to Paris, relocating <laughs> not only herself, her daughter, who's already dealing with like the complicated emotional trauma of being an adopted child and, and her father, which if that's not an expression of how much this show is centered around Bill's ego, Does I say don't no. know what is. <laughs> she, she says no. <laughs> the, but she yeah. does say no, but the fact that like that is still left as an open kind of thing at the end, like, okay, Maybe and I'm he, biased. And that, he thinks it's, and that he thinks it's a good idea. Yeah. That's, <laughs> yes, that's it. And that he thinks that's appropriate. And the fact yeah. that, okay, I don't know a single woman in my personal circle, and I am biased by the limited whatever like amount of people that is. I don't know a single woman who's at the top of her field as accomplished as Ji-hoon would be, who would continue to have romantic associations with a man that basically said, basically said to her, give up your life because I'm more important. Also, yeah. let us not forget the end during the hearing where he gives a speech about stories and poems that's Tyrion Lannister-esque, except it's definitely about her uh, and not actually stories or poems. And that's how she comes to the realization that, like, the university, like, won't change. Like, like her her big speech, which, like, to some degree is, like, correct. Um, but also, like, it feels like it's triggered by Bill again. She comes to this realization because of the pontifications of a white dude who's up until that point been treating her like garbage, not from the experience of her own profession of decades within the academy. Uh, I'd been thinking about this and wanted mm-hmm. to talk about it. The speech is actually a coded love appeal to Ji Yoon. He says he's talking about falling in love with stories and literature, but he's really talking about being in love with her. And he says you're trying to occupy a different space. And when you're in the middle of a story, you're in a space of possibility. Uh, It's a dance. It's an ongoing conversation. It's a very complicated but faithful relationship. So it was like it was the the romantic gesture. Um, But the problem is that then she has to recuse herself from the committee and then she is overthrown as the chair. Yeah. Uh, So I, I, I agree with all of your criticisms about Bill. He was a frustrating character for me. There is some part of me that uh, I can't say that I I have liked people like this in real life in my past and I'm sort of regretful about that (laughs) so I think he you know but I, what I was struck by how similar this speech was to the speech that uh, Tyrion gives at the end of Game of Thrones. And so yeah. I think this is where like Amanda Pete, her Game of Thrones husband, his co-writer, like the, what they are saying is that stories matter and stories are important and that our culture can't survive without stories. And I 100 percent agree with everything you said earlier, Katya. I think it was you who was saying that we have to be real about what these skills can do for us in the real world 
world. But I also think I let I appreciated that the show this is a Raymond William point, actually, that yeah. he says that human life like stories are absolutely fundamental to human life. We can't have human life without stories and storytelling. And so there was something that this was a romantic moment that kind of got me and was like, yes, this is what my life is about to some extent. And I am looking at the story on this show and I'm trying to see it as open and as possible in this moment because you're reminding me that that is how stories work when you're in them, when you're inside of them. And, and I think that this is one of the things that I, I do appreciate about the chair is I think so often when I hear this conversation, the Academy of like, what what is what is our attention to stories and what are the humanities and specifically the study of literature for is it's often treated as this binary. Either you have the idea that it's that, that the study of literature is utilitarian, which I think that there is actually there is use value in our everyday lives studying literature or you have this idea of like storytelling is part of our innate humanness that these somehow things there's some kind of binary and that they are distinct and it's like no stories are useful because stories are innately like innate to our experience of being human and like the fact that there is for some reason a desire to draw this distinction that you can't have that we can't have it like i think this is one of those few rare moments you can't have it both ways i yeah i love that point my problem was i wanted if, if you're going to do that and i agree it could have been a better story <laughs> and i don't mean that much like game of thrones okay yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. Done. No, i don't i don't mean that i don't mean that it's snidely as it sounds because here's the thing like, it's not that it's bad it's not again i did not hate this show and it um, I saw oh, okay. I saw some critiques online where some people were some people were I saw a lot of people who um, are who felt very seen by the show and loved it. And I saw a lot of people who were very critical of it. Um, and almost all of them were, were academics. And it was um, I saw I saw one person make a comment on Twitter complaining, trying to like break it down on gender lines where where she had said, well, it's only men criticizing the show. Every woman loves it. And I'm like, that's not true. Just sir, I'm, like I'm reading all the tweets about it. I, I spent like three hours reading all of Twitter of the chair <laughs> two nights ago. So it's it, it's very split. And I think the split really comes down very much about where you are on the uh, academic ladder right now. <laughs> I think that if, I think that there are a lot of people who are adjuncts who are very frustrated with it. Um, and there are a lot of people who are just pre-tenure or just post-tenure um, who um, really identify with it because they see they see the criticism. And then I think there are people who have had tenure for 20 years who are just like, what? I, I don't get this at all. And I, I think the show, I, I don't think the show knows how to deal with that because it does feel like it has the responsibility of trying to deal with every academic problem ever in, you know, in five hours of television. I think two and a half. Yeah. Maybe that's, oh, yeah. that's, that's a good transition to, to your, yeah, your point. My, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I shared this with the, the, the co-host in the group chat earlier. This was a, a review of it. It's written, I think, in a personal message, maybe with a, a group chat of friends uh, that was shared with me by, uh, by one of my friends who teaches at Pitt. This was written by Pam Wojcik, who is a film scholar at Notre Dame. And she kind of touches on, on all these different pieces. Um, and I, when I posted it in the group chat, we all sort of went, yeah, that, that's kind of it. So I'm going to read what she says. And I got her permission to do so. Uh, here's what I will say about the chair. Spoilers included. 
included. Aside from the egregious ageism, which many of you have mentioned, aside from the fact that a show presumably about a woman of color becoming chair becomes a narrative primarily about her efforts to help a problematic, charming white man, aside from the need to have her job compromised by a romance, aside from the fact that her role as single mom is treated as somehow completely compromised because of her job, aside from the fact that the problematic, charming white man had to be seen as a better, more natural parent than the single mom, the one who can cook and cuddle and teach and play, none of which she apparently can. <laughs> Aside from the fact that the black female scholar functions largely to authenticate or critique others, but gives no sense of her having her own life. Aside from the problematic representation of students as enacting knee-jerk cancel culture with no ability to understand context for a comment. Aside from the fantasy that this fancy school that only has one black scholar in its English department with a has a very diverse student body with hardly any white students at all, all of whom are super attuned to white supremacism. And aside from the fact that the chair manages to lose her position as chair on a mere six episodes so that the show ultimately puts the white second-wave feminist in charge instead of the groovy young 47-year-old Korean, I thought New Company was funny and I liked the kid. That really kind of summed up my thoughts. Of, I, I, yep. And I, I, we're, we're closing into an end. We'll resolve nothing. I, there, there were a couple of just dumb little things I noticed while watching it. This is me mm-hmm. looking at just some of the symbolism and, and you know, subtle messages in the storytelling. There's the montage scene of where he's, he's Bill is playing with Juju and there's this happy-go-lucky upbeat talking head song because it's such a charming scene and he's wearing the Joy Division shirt which sends a very different message in terms of the music of the 80s. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, he he's depressed and I thought they, they didn't choose that. I mean, they're making him the prototypical Gen X white guy and, and him wearing that shirt was not accidental bumped up against the music that they had actually chosen. There was also in, I think the fifth episode, there was like one student on campus. It wasn't a Trump hat, but he was wearing a red cap and he's like, yes, free speech yelling over at Bill. I was like, okay. Uh, and it, and they, they never came back to that or this contingent of students who supported him. But he was very definitely through the way he looked and that cap specifically coded as right wing Trump supporter and their views on. You know, yeah, go ahead. Give that Nazi symbol. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, I know I know we're closing on the uh, so we resolved nothing. But one last thing I want to talk about that I think is is just really interesting. And I would love to hear people's take on it is the weird pedagogy subplot. So there's a scene mm-hmm. where Yaz is teaching her teaching in that weird, awkward co-teaching situation with the uh, older. Uh, let's go with Dusty Professor. Um, and the assignment I'm not sure what the actual assignment was but basically what, what's happening on in the scene is her students are performing their interpretations of Moby Dick and the one that gets the most screen time is basically I think it's, uh, it's, a, it's a musical performance and they're talking it's a musical performance about not only not, not just the, the, the content of Moby Dick but it's also like about Melville and the relationship to gender and, and race mm-hmm. and all the other stuff that, that talking, study, studying Melville affords you. And it's an example of something we would now call an authentic assessment, which I will throw to Hannah to explain more what that is in a second. But basically within the show, and this kind of played out on Twitter from what I can tell as well, is the idea that younger academics see this as like, this is where the field of pedagogy is headed because of, of the field of, of, of pedagogical research, what we understand about how students learn, 
and what they and what they learn from different kinds of situations. And then older faculty who are from like this isn't was not their experience. And when I say older, I mean like not not like 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 emeritus. Right. Like, right. Oh no. <laughs> uh, like that. This isn't. This was not their experience of going. Not only was it, was their experience as a student. It's also not their experience of how they were taught to teach. So there's this. So they look at this and they think this is a joke. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just I guess I, I, I'm i curious about this because an article that Mav shared was was talking about like that yeah, was referring to Yaz's teaching and her pedagogy as cringeworthy. And I was like, I had experiences as cringeworthy worthy whatsoever, because like I said, this is actually in alignment with our current understanding of how people learn. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's a couple of things here, which is for most of the classroom scenes we see, it's mostly like either a professor lecturing or um, a professor like reading out some text and then saying, what do you think? Which is opening the floor up to discussion, but it's not really uh, engaging students in something we would call active learning, which um, actually like uh, Kathy Davidson has recently talked about this on Twitter about how like, you know, there are specific techniques like think pair share and not just throwing a discussion to the room because of all the inequities in the classroom that can replicate or, you know, how like Shire students um, even might not like feel the re- like feel like, you know, able to raise their hands. Um, Yaz also talks about like asking students to like tweet their favorite lines of Melville as a way to engage them that is like brushed off. And I, I saw brushed off um, in conversation um, as well. And, you know, authentic assessment is like, you know, trying to think beyond some of the traditional, like not just in the humanities, but in, in like all disciplines, thinking beyond like some of the traditional things like a research paper or um, and a, a multiple choice exam and thinking about how can like students apply this to like real life? What are some like real world ways that they can apply what they're learning? Um, and, you know, um, give, like potentially like even giving like students a choice and how they want to demonstrate their learning. Uh, and, it you know, this is all plays in um, into like thinking about like more like something like a people call like inclusive pedagogy. So I we didn't spend a lot of time in the classroom, um, but it also like it also like seemed to play um, to me as well. But like aside from Yaz's class and her interactions with students, it almost felt like some of the students, um, like, like most of the professors and most of the students for the entirety of the show were almost like pitted against each other. Like um, the professors had very hostile relationships with the students and saw them as threats. Whether that be um, because they saw students as potentially like sexually interested in them, though that wasn't the case, or just because they... Like didn't, I guess we shouldn't get started on that plot line. Um, yeah. Oh, but or or just you know they like don't understand um, or Jones you know Hall what they say. My professor story arc. Yes, yeah, exactly. So it's it's you know it's a lot of complicated things going on. It just it it felt very. I'm making I'm making I'm making a gesture, but you can't see it because it's not here. I mean, pedagogy was weird. Pedagogy for our listeners is basically the science of teaching. <laughs> I guess is about the, the 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 way I describe it in three seconds. It is approached in a very odd way. The article, it was actually Hannah shared the article in our, in our, in our host chat that called it cringeworthy. Like this is, it's not cringeworthy. This is common. Like, I mean, I've, I've, I have been in many classes and taught many classes where it's like, Hey, 
you know, maybe don't just write another boring paper, try to do something creative. And frankly, nobody is Mm -hmm. taking the amount of effort to put together a whole production number like they did on the show, but it's TV, you know, and, but I have like done, you know, make a magazine instead of, or people have made board games or people have made, you know, song like you like scholarship does happen in that way. So I have had students make productions. It does happen. Yeah, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 it's not that weird at all. Um, and I think the I I think the show was trying to be a little innovative about that in a way that like cause it, it did it quickly because there's also there's this point where where Jiyun has this she's having a conversation with David Duchovny and basically in 60 seconds or less trying to tell him every advent in that there has been in English lit academia and pedagogy in the last 25 years. And she does it in like 60 seconds of just naming a whole bunch of terms, <laughs> which was nice that the show is aware of them. But I, I think that that was a, Oh my God, we only have two episodes left. We have to make sure we get everything in here. And that was weird about the show in the same. And I, and I think it's just, it's a convenience in the same way that my problem like one of my biggest problems with the show is, as Katya pointed out, what becomes the cent- the central thing and sort of swallows up the rest of the show is this trial for Bill of, you know, should mm-hmm. he be fired or not for this Nazi jet- gesture? And the problem is the show doesn't understand how how, you know, Twitter works or the Internet works, because, yes, I so he does a, a student films him giving a lecture wherein he does the Heil Hitler sign, except that it was in poor taste. Yes, but we see the entire lecture. We see five minutes of the of, of lecture, what's presumably an hour lecture. We see five minutes of it. The student posts 10 seconds of it, except for he was clearly live streaming it. So the entire lecture is available. And any review board would have, you know, if, if that had come to light, any review board would have looked at the entire lecture and seen that, no, he was not giving it like he's literally talking about the problems with Nazis in the lecture. Right. Like, it, like, yes, it was a problem. He should have been he should have been smarter than that. But like he would have, he, it would not have gotten to the point of there are, you know, he would not have been that canceled because the rest of the video would have come out. <laughs> you know, like that's kind of yeah. does kind of go back to the thing I was saying about how a lot of this show seems like what normal people think academics worry about. Yeah, because <laughs> there have been a lot of scandals where professors are saying really controversial things in yes. the classroom. This one is not a good example of like real life examples of that happening. And the same with um, the Daphna character. I'm not sure if she's a grad student or an undergrad, but like she's a, she's a, she's a freshman. She's a freshman. She's, she's a freshman. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and it seems like normal people think that like that's a normal interaction between like students and their professors and that all of these scandals about like professors harassing their students are actually students coming on to their professors <laughs> and having their thing, their very obvious signs misread intentionally. Like if you watch that show and get to the end and are not shocked that she did just want to give him her novel. That's because it was stupid because she literally says she wants to sleep with him earlier. The, the show the show swerves you by lying like she tells her yeah. her friend oh yeah he's hot I want him you know <laughs> it, it really yeah. like felt hot Sorry. yeah she doesn't go all the way in her talk no. but yeah it's stupid <laughs> but yeah, yeah the show it's it's that's what I was getting at the show wants to do it wants to do all these things and it you know if if this had been a 22 episode um season of Friday Night Lights you know you could have done more this is a six episode mm-hmm. season of the chair right and if it had been 
three seasons, you know, three seasons on Netflix. You could have done more. This is six episodes. They and and they don't know if they're going to get any more. And frankly, I don't know that they will either because I don't think it's doing all that well. So I think it I think it tries to do a lot. It takes a lot of big swings and then it gets wrapped up. So you Nat, you just said, you know, there there are very real problems in academia with out of touch professors thinking that they can still teach the way they did in 1954. Mm -hmm. Bill's not doing that. Like Bill could have easily I've seen people get in trouble for using the N word. Right. Mm -hmm. But they didn't want Bill to be they didn't want him to be such a bad guy that he clearly did something wrong. So they try to have it both ways. They try to have it be a misunderstanding rather than him being out of touch. And then that that undercuts it. Right. They say they do the same thing with um, with this, you know, the potential sexual harassment with uh, with Daphne. Right. Oh, no, it's all a misunderstanding. So it's not that big a deal. No, just do like if you want to do that plot do that plot um mm-hmm. every everything jiun does is this right like she she is absolutely well meaning um and yaz is sort of you know like yaz is sort of like you're not doing enough for me but it's okay cuz you're trying and like it's like like nobody's allowed to be a bad guy cuz the show doesn't want anybody to be bad guys and what it and it's a, it's a flaw in the way that we do that we do shows like this it, it reminds me mm-hmm. of um uh, what's the Queen movie? Bohemian Rhapsody. I mean, uh, where there's a there's a scene in Bohemian Rhapsody where I think it's Brian May's character is like, "No, Freddie, we can't party all night with you because we have wives and children now, and there's no more cocaine or groupies." Like, it's like, what are you doing? Right? It's just the wanna, trying to sanctify it so much. I, I do want to underscore something that Nat said though, because I, I do think it's important to highlight the fact, like the idea that the what what other people outside of the academy think that professors worry about and. And why Bill being blameless is, to me, a real problem because it does. Mm -hmm. When I think of the professors that Bill reminds me of, they are people who... Genuine bad guys. Yes. (laughs) Yes. No one likes them. (laughs) Well, no one should like them. I think part of what Bill bothers me about his representation is I've met professors like that that are extremely charming and and extremely popular. And in my experience, especially looking back on my undergraduate years, those are frankly the professors that should raise red flags Mm -hmm. Um, because those are the professors that I'm not saying that everyone who's popular and charming and everything is like this, but it is easier for those professors to get away with things. And in my personal experience and the experience of many of my particularly female colleagues, those professors are more likely to be concerning. Um, and not because necessarily they're malicious, but again, to the out of touch point. And I, I dislike that this show portrays that kind of person as blameless mm-hmm. um, and as a mistake, because I, I do agree that 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 gives people pause when looking at actual like actual issues of misconduct that appear in the media with professors who behave like this and say like, well, maybe it was the student's fault because this show very much puts this on the students. Mm-hmm. Um, even some of the t- mm-hmm. like the hot takes I've seen about cancel culture, about the show, but that blames squarely on the students. Mm-hmm. And I have a big problem with those takes because I think it's not just that the professors in the show have an antagonistic relationship with students. I think the show as a whole has an antagonistic relationship mm-hmm. with students, which mm-hmm. I have big issues with. But that is probably for another episode. I just wanted to say one thing about the students. Um, 
I I've been teaching Gen Z now for about five years <laughs> and I actually oh. find them to be the most extraordinary humans mm-hmm. I have ever interacted with. My kids belong to this generation too. So I'm probably especially biased. I have a 14 year old and a 17 year old, but they are so on it in a way that actually has changed who I am as a person in this, in the class I taught this spring, I taught a class on HBO's Watchmen. I had the students create a podcast as their final assignment, this kind of funky assignment. And I had my first ever uh, open trans student in the class, uh, actually non-binary student. And uh, I misgendered the student uh, accidentally, of course, several times. And the rest of the class just stayed on my case until I got it right. They would not let up. Uh, They weren't particularly nice about it. And that was okay. (laughs) And I just I have to say, I adore this generation. I think they are our only hope. I think they are going to save our species if we are worth saving. And I think I think the chair does caricature them a little bit. But if you I confess, I've actually watched this series three times now. If you watch some of those, I'm sorry, because I'm trying to write about this for publication. So if if you watch those scenes carefully, the show actually gives their actual lines quite a bit of potency and and Mm -hmm. reasonableness that is Mm -hmm. sort of uh, belied by the fact that they're taking this Nazi salute out of context. So mm-hmm. um, so I I think the show, again, kind of like we keep saying, it wants to have it both ways with this generation. Yeah. And mm-hmm. um, I just I just have to say this generation kicks butt and mm-hmm. I adore them. Mm-hmm. And if, if I had nothing but Gen Z students for the rest of my life, I would I would die a happy professor. Mm-hmm. I had a, a similar experience with that at a presentation I did at Chatham. And, and same kind of thing, just accidental on my part. I'm an old guy. I'm learning. They, <laughs> they kept calling me out on it. And I'm thankful for it. I'm grateful. Um, mm-hmm. It is something I definitely learned. So. This is him on TikTok. Because Gen Z is like, <laughs> I, I, I would agree. Gen Z is like, Awesome. I'm learning so much on TikTok from Gen Z. Yeah. <laughs> so, so <laughs> it's so, wonderful. So we've resolved nothing except that Gen Z is pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> and now my hair is back in style because of things. I'm happy, with that. I'm happy with that being the conclusion of our time together. Okay, good. Yeah. Good. <laughs> Come, easy academics. Stay for the affirmation of the youths. <laughs> okay, so so Mav, as as the chair of this committee, uh, you should. I guess I am. I don't know. I, 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 I much like when she's high and doesn't have any, anything good to say. <laughs> I don't, I don't know that there's. I don't know that there's anything even to resolve on this one because it was such a. This is a weird thing. I I I am glad the show existed. I don't know that it was. You know, it's the kind of thing that a show that exists for academics to overanalyze because that's sort of what we do. And, but then this show, literally this show is academics overanalyzing something. So like, thank you, Netflix, I, I guess. <laughs> I don't, I mean, I, I don't, I don't think it's, um, I, I don't think it's, um, it, it's that bad. So I don't know. But anyway, uh, I want to, I want to thank our guests. Um, Kathy, if people, 
<laughs> Kathy, if I'm people want to, yeah, uh, yeah, I want to think I guess Kathy, if people wanted to like learn more about your work or follow you, is there any, anything you want to plug? Uh, I have an op-ed about the chair coming out in the Post Gazette this Sunday in the form section. Oh, nice, awesome, awesome. We will let's see if it's out on Sunday. Yes, it's linked in the show notes. And Natalie, you haven't been back in a while. What about you? Uh, I have a chapter that I just published in a book called The New Witches Critical Essays on 21st Century Television Portrayals. Mm -hmm. Uh, So if you want to hear my thoughts on deconstructing the magicians on TV, feel free to check that out. I can probably send you the Amazon link. Please do. <laughs> That'll be linked in the show notes as well. And Palindrome Hannah. You can find me at voxpopcast.com where we post blogs about upcoming shows, which will not be about the chair. So <laughs> I don't even know. You never know. There might be a second season. Oh, next shows. There could be. We'll, ne- we'll, ne- we'll, we'll find out. We'll find out soon. Uh, Katya. Uh, you can technically find me on all the social medias at just that nerd kid, or you would if I actually posted things. <laughs> Which you don't. I will eventually. Uh, I, have, I have existential social media angst, which, you know, TBD on how that turns that out. That was last episode. We've <laughs> talked about that already. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, all of the places, always at Chris Maverick. You can follow the show, all those same places at Vox Popcast. You can follow the show's blog at www.voxpopcast.com, where you can learn what we're talking about next week. Next week is pop history. I think unless that was this last week. Yeah, it's next week. <laughs> Podcast time travel. It very much confuses me. But we have we got some some really interesting things coming up. Um, so go there, leave us comments so that we can address them on the show. If you enjoy the show, and we certainly hope you do, please subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever the hell else you get podcasts from and do us a favor and leave us a five-star review. If you leave us a five-star rating and a review, if you write something and tell us how much you love the show, especially on Apple Podcasts, that really helps us out by goosing the algorithms, making us more popular. You know, sort of the same way Netflix gooses their algorithms to make this show more popular. Um, And we need that. We can use that because, you know, academia is hard. And like, you know, we said, there's a I'm an adjunct. I need this to be a career, people. You don't exist. You <laughs> <I> barely exist. <laughs> we'll do is we'll do a, a, a the chair Vox Pop kept crossover where Mav is the adjunct in the show. Oh, you know, God. so many people are joking about the adjunct. We could do a radio play called the adjunct. <laughs> oh my God. I think we need we need to pitch a network show called the adjunct. This is getting way too mm-hmm. real, way too fast. <laughs> <laughs> But I would like to thank Maximilian of Thought Form Music for our epic theme song building ever so more epically and playing us out. I'd like to thank all of our guests for joining us. I'd like to thank you at home for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.